welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Cheney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Cheney Galuzzi and Howard LLC, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committee. I also serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the CBA Young Lawyers Division Executive Council. Finally, I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. I'd also like to give a special shout out to Rick at Lions Bridge Recording. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. And with that, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Chris Brock, who is one of my uh, good friends from law school. How are you doing today, Chris? Doing well, Kevin. How are you doing? I am doing all right. You know, it's a nice uh, sunny summer day out here. Um, so uh, Chris is the managing attorney of Probate Power, which is the CCDC's probate and estate planning and legal program. And prior to joining CCDC, Chris worked as a law clerk for the Honorable A. Bruce Jones in the Denver District Court and as a Dean's Fellow at the University of Colorado Law School. He's admitted to the Colorado Bar and is a member of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, where he belongs to the Trust and Estate and Elder Law sections. Chris focuses his practice in the areas of special needs planning, estate planning, and probate administration. Chris graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014. He clerked for several organizations during law school, including the Civil Litigation and Employment Law Section of the Attorney General's Office and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. He earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science and American Studies from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Chris, why don't uh, you just kind of give the, the listeners a little bit of background. Uh, where, where are you from? I am from a tiny town in southwest Ohio called Camden. So um, if your listeners hear a little twang in my voice, that's that's where that came from. That's that Camden um, twang right there? Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the Camden, about, about an hour north of Cincinnati. And the closer you get to Cincinnati, the, the more the twang comes in. The more you get closer to uh, the Ohio River there in Kentucky, yeah. Okay. Okay. And then, uh, just from your bio, I saw you went to the Miami university in Ohio, um, and you got the, uh, political science, American studies, uh, double major. I also have the political science and American studies double major. Were you already thinking law school, I guess, when you got that? I, I was, I was thinking law school. Um, <laughs> Same I, I've here. been thinking law school since about high school, I would say. I didn't know what I wanted to do in terms of what area of practice, but since I don't know, 15, 16 years old, the thought of being a lawyer was right, like right there, number one on my list. And I saw political science, American studies, like learning about our history and, and politics and stuff, kind of the the best 
platform to to jump off of into law school. And you know, we're, we're so similar in that. I also kind of decided I wanted to be a lawyer at a, a really young age. And then once you get a poli-sci American studies double major, that's pretty much your only option because there's not a lot of uh, great careers looking to hire a, a bachelor of political science or American studies out there. That is very true. Uh, yeah, after I graduated, I worked for the Obama campaign for a year. Okay. Um, and that was great, but you're not going to make a living being a, a you know a campaigner walking <laughs> the streets. So after about a year of that, I'm like, yep, time for law school. And was that were you working for Obama out in Ohio? I was uh, there in Trouble County in rural Ohio, trying to convince all of my buddies and friends who. Um, probably had never voted Democrat in their life that, hey, take a look at this, at this Obama guy. Hey, there's a lot worse states, though. At least you were in like a battleground area when they were, uh, you know, going after it. That made, that made it super fun. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, so then for, for law school, obviously, uh, you went to the University of Colorado, go Buffs, class of 2014. Great year. I know some great people that graduated that year. Um, what brought you to Colorado? Was it the law school? Was it Colorado itself, or, or kind of tell us a little bit about that journey. Sure. So a, a, after I graduated from Miami, I, I so I grew up about 20 minutes from Miami. Cam, Camden is just 20 minutes down the road. And after I graduated from college, I was thinking like, man, let, let's see another part of the country a little bit. Um, at the time, I was really leaning towards environmental law. So that was something I was looking for in, in a law school program. So I, uh, most of the law schools I applied to were actually out West because I had a professor in college who actually grew up in Crescent Butte, Colorado. And he okay. loved the West. Yeah. And so he was a great influence on me, same as uh, Kevin Armitage. Um, and he was a great influence. And so I thought, let's check out the West a little bit. And so I applied to several out here in the West and I got in, at, it, it, I got in at CU. And so I came out and visited. And the day I visited CU Law School, I sold. It was I, it was home. I could tell right away. Oh, dude, it's it's so funny how that works. You know, I I grew up in uh, Wyoming, also a pretty rural area, and I always had this vision of me living in San Francisco. And I only had been to San Francisco one time. I'd been like six years old, but like that was like the dream for me. You know, like oh, what a cool city. And I was going to go to law school out there, and my older brother lived in Denver and was like, you know, why don't you just come to Colorado? Just come check it out, see how it feels. And after, like, a couple days and, like, touring CU, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the one. You know, sorry, San Francisco. That's that's not going to be the dream anymore. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I know you said that you wanted to be a lawyer from when you were about 16. Um was there a specific aspect that kind of drew you to the legal profession? I know you mentioned uh, you were interested in environmental law. Was that kind of like where you started when you were 16? The, the environmental law came probably when I was in college when I realized how big the deal climate change was. Okay. Uh, and environmental degradation and how all that was happening um, under you know, George W. Bush at the time and, and stuff. And I thought that was just the 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 one issue that if I was going to devote my life to you know as a job I climate change is it and so I was really thinking about environmental law um, before when I was in high school it was just being a lawyer in general and I think the reason why it was being a lawyer in general is just a great way to help people and there there's so many avenues to being a lawyer that you can go down to help people and environmental law was definitely one of them it was high on my list um, obviously I, I'm not doing that now and, um, I, it just 
ended up not happening for me, not being my path. But just being a lawyer, having that JD, there's just so many doors that open up and so many things you can do, whether working for a nonprofit like I do, working for the government, being a uh, you know a litigator every day of your life like you are, um, or you know doing something not involved in the law at all, but having that JD just opens those doors. And I thought, this is the best way for me to do something good with my life is getting that advanced degree, that law degree. You know, I'm always looking for for themes and kind of patterns uh, b- amongst our guests. And one of the ones that I feel like is, is, is present in most of these conversations is getting to law school with the idea of doing one area of law. But then by the time you leave law school, you end up on a different path. Um, was there like a moment in law school where you were like, you know, environmental law just isn't isn't going to be my thing? Um, or was that kind of like a gradual realization or, or talk a, l- a little bit about kind of that mindset or that transition for you? I think it was a more gradual transition for me. Uh, I, I worked for the EPA, as you mentioned, one semester. And that, that was really interesting. Uh, it was in the regu- it was in like the fuels division, so regulating. I remember uh, regulating fuels from ships and boats and things like that, and mm. cars. It was interesting. And then uh, one semester, I also worked for the Sierra Club, doing various different sort of things for them. And I think I realized over time, kind of two things. One uh, was that it's honestly really difficult to get a job on the environmental group side. It seemed really tough to find, like, I mean, you know, it's probably, it seemed much easier to get a job, you know, working for oil and gas or, or something like that. But working for an environmental group like the Sierra Club, Defenders of Wildlife, just seemed really hard not to crack, honestly. Um, so it, that, that was kind of one aspect I looked at, like, wow, this is going to be really a tough job market out there. And the second was that um, I realized, like, while I really, really cared about the environment, doing the work day to day was not, was not exactly thrilling for me. Right. It wasn't something that I, I didn't wake up in the morning and think, you know, yeah, you know, Chevron tests and regulations, you know, <laughs> leg reg, like, 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 you know, go the minutia of regulations and, and that sort of stuff. It just, I, I found out over the course of taking these classes in law school and stuff that, you know, by the end of 3L year, I realized that that's not, something I want to do every day, you know, it's super important and hats off to the people who do because I you know, great respect for them and what they do is amazing. But I found out, I, I don't know if I could do that day in, day out for 20 years. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you do do uh, day in and kind of day out. Uh, where are you working these days? Right now I work for the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition, also called CCDC. And uh, I think I heard earlier that's a, a nonprofit. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, CCDC? Uh, what is it? Kind of what's its mission? Sure. Uh, CCDC is a disability rights organization, uh, a social justice organization that started in 1990, actually, so uh, 31 years ago now. And um, CCDC is, you know, there to advocate for all types of people with disabilities from down syndrome to physical di- dis- disabilities to autism to you know the whole spectrum of disabilities hence hence the cross disability in the name and uh, CCDC was started by a bunch of advocates who wanted to help others in the dis- disabled community um, help with reasonable accommodations 
you know, help with job placement, Medicaid, Medicaid appeals, and advocating on uh, the state level. You know, the, we right now we we have a big advocacy department that advocates on the state level to try to let the legislature know that hey, there you know one fifth of Coloradoans have a disability, and this is something that you need to focus on when you're passing bills. That you know you have a population here that has a voice, and we want you know we want you to hear us. And so that's what uh, mostly that's what CCDC does. Uh, we also have an ADA litigation department, and then we have my program. And so is it mostly lawyers then? I mean, so it sounds like there's a lot of kind of like legal navigation and also some advocacy. Actually, mostly it is mostly advocates. So okay. um, there, most of CCDC is advocacy with the advocacy department and then people on the state level and people helping with Medicaid appeals, non-attorneys. Uh, and then we have a small ADA litigation legal department that's run by Kevin Williams and they do a, lit- a lot of litigation over reasonable accommodation, suing under the ADA. And then there's my program, which is probate power, which does uh, special needs planning and so forth. And that's you know, the other legal program. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, probate power. H- has that been around long? Is that relatively uh, a new thing? Or tell us a little bit about it. So probate power has been around. It'll, it'll hit its fifth year anniversary this coming September. Oh, cool. Uh, so... Probate power is what we call a social enterprise. So it is a legal program under the CCDC umbrella, but as a social enterprise, the whole uh, goal of, of probate power is to, there's two, two goals for, for probate power. One is to generate revenue for the nonprofit so that the nonprofit CCDC doesn't just have to rely on grants and donations, that there's another revenue stream there. Um, and then the second goal of probate power is to provide these special needs planning services that uh, honestly can be hard to find out there in the community. And why is, so when I think of probate, I think of, you know, wills and, and people kind of passing away. Why is probate so important to the disabled community? And, and why would CCDC, obviously a revenue stream, but how, is, how does it kind of play into the mission, I guess, of CCDC? Well, you know, the, the mission of CCDC is social justice, uh, nothing without us, without the disabled, you know, individuals uh, advocating for ourselves. And one act, and if you think of probate, as you said, mostly you think of uh, people passing away, wills, trusts, things like that. Um, but let's say you have a child with Down syndrome and she turns 18 years old and um, you have, yeah, and, and you pass away and you give your inheritance to her. Uh, if, her, if that inheritance goes directly to her, she is gonna most likely lose her Medicaid. She's gonna lose her SSI. And all of a sudden she's lost her public benefits that she was relying on and lo- losing um, all the benefits that come with that. Okay. So with special needs planning, what we do is we can make sure that inheritance can go into what's called a special needs trust that can, uh, kind of shelter that inheritance on her behalf, and she can still maintain public benefit eligibility, still receive all the benefits that Medicaid and Social Security have to offer. Okay, so it's it's still related to, you know, kind of people 
passing away, but it's really about helping plan for, you know, disabled children or, or people that are dependent on that person that passes away and, and doing so in a way that um, still allows people to access those public benefits and kind of make the best financial situation with kind of how to set it all up. Is, is that kind of right? That, that's right. So it's really how, you know, if you have a family with a child with special needs, it's like, how do we plan for our future and for our daughter's future, you know, 40 years past when we pass away? So you have special needs trust to, to provide uh, those assets, to collect that inheritance. There's also guardianships, conservatorships, make sure that, you know, my child with Down syndrome, my child with severe autism, I can be their guardian after they turn 18, and then we can name future guardians, other people can to make decisions for them after I pass away. So I know that their, their person is protected and that they have assets in this trust to provide for them uh, long into the future. So I know that uh, conservatorships have been in the, the news, especially yesterday uh, because of uh, Britney Spears. So probably uh, a lot of people are learning about the fact that these things exist. Um, what is the difference between a conservatorship and a guardianship? So it, it's a little funny. In California, a conservatorship is what we call a guardianship here in Colorado. Okay. So every state kind of uses different vocabulary. So, um, but a guardianship, here in a conservatorship in California basically means that somebody is in charge of an incapacitated adult and can make decisions for them. And it can be as limited to just medical decisions or unlimited and broad-based and cover everything from medical decisions, financial decisions, where the person lives, et cetera. Um, and then a conservatorship here in Colorado just deals with finances. So for instance, if there's someone who, um, you know, grandma has a large estate and has a bunch of money, owns a business, but then she gets dementia, you know, what do we do about that? And that's when a conservatorship can come into place and somebody can, you know, take over her finances and help run that business, et cetera. And do you guys work exclusively with uh, the disabled community or um, if someone wants a, a will or an estate, is that something that probate power does as well? Are you guys, I guess, open to the public, if you will, or, or only in that kind of specific niche? We're totally open to the public. Um, we focus on families with disabilities and families with special needs, but uh, I would say probably 15 to 20% of my clients over the past couple of years have been families or individuals who did not need anything extra because of the disability or special needs. They just may have had a, a family member or a friend or a neighbor who said, hey, we got our will done with him. He works for a non disability rights nonprofit, but he can still do your will. And so I, I definitely do um, estate planning for people who don't have anyone with disabilities or special needs. And I think because you said earlier, um, some of the profit from the law firm aspect of it goes back to CCDC. Is that kind of a way, I guess, people could support the CCDC is by kind of having their uh, estate planning and probate needs uh, done through probate power? That's how we see it. Yes. Uh, it's a great way to not, I mean, not everyone is able to, you know, you know, uh, write a check to CCDC every quarter or every year. But if they can find a way, if they have a need for a will, a power of attorney document, special needs trust, et cetera, and um, they want to also help CCDC at the same time, it's a great way to fulfill both of those. 
What about for, so most of our, our listeners are law students or young lawyers. Um, is there a way for them to get involved with CCDC or or assist in some way? I mean, do you guys have interns? Is there some type of volunteer program um, that they can kind of get involved and, and help the, the local disabled community? Absolutely. So uh, probate power, we almost always have an intern. So actually, my previous fall intern is now uh, my now paralegal. She just graduated from law school. Her name's Hannah. And after she takes the bar, she's going to join me and be the second attorney at Probate Power. Awesome. Um, you guys so, are growing. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're growing and she's great. So um, I'm happy to have her on board. So um, another CU grad, by the way. Hey, go Buffs. Um, yeah. And so we we always, uh, we also, we almost always have some sort of summer intern. We have a fall intern coming up that's a, a, a DU law student. So probate power always tries to have some, a student in there both to learn and to take, you know, to take some of the workload off of the attorneys, off of me. So that's always great. And CCDC itself, we are always looking for volunteers to help advocate on the state level if they want to learn about helping people stay on Medicaid, that sort of stuff. Uh, CCDC is always looking for volunteers to, to do those sorts of things. Is there any, I guess, tips or tricks you have for um, a, a law student that's thinking about um, either working in the disability realm or in kind of the probate estate planning realm? Obviously, you probably want to take some, you know, trust in estates uh, and some of those basic uh, classes. But is there anything else that you kind of wish you had known in law school? Um, been like, oh, hey, I, I would have gotten involved in this or I would have done that. Any advice kind of now five, six years removed? I, I think definitely any sort of internship, externship, some sort of, you know, job placement you can do at any either law firm or nonprofit that's, that's in the field is it, invaluable. Um, or even clerking for a judge that maybe works on a probate docket, if that intrigues you. Um, that seems to be the way to learn, you know, like that's how I was in law school, you know, even though it's not exactly the same, when I worked at the attorney general's office in the civil litigation department, it was an invaluable experience just learning how to write things and submit stuff to court and whatnot. And um, trying to do that in the actual field that you want to work in, it's really unique and valuable. Um, and it can probably help you land a job, maybe even at that place. Like like Hannah, who was working for me you know, in the fall. And when I hired her as a fall intern, sorry, fall extern, um, I didn't know that I was going to be hiring her in January. It was just by, by the mid-December, I needed the help, and she was awesome. So, you know, it was a perfect combination. So it, sometimes it just works out that way. So tell us a little bit about, so you're one of the, I think the first, if, if or one of the only, if not the first kind of probate um, and estate planning lawyer we've had on the show. Um, tell me a little bit about the day-to-day um, you know, do you go to court at all? Is it mostly meeting with clients? Is it a lot of writing? Um, kind of what's your day-to-day life like in this practice area? That's a good question. Uh, my very, you know, when I wake up in the morning, first thing I do, uh, once I start working, answer emails. That is uh, a big thing. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but uh, answering tons of emails was something I did not expect when I became a lawyer. Uh, there, I'm, I'm surprised by the volume of emails, you know, like that. So that is something that young lawyers or, you know, law students really need to keep in mind is that 
you need to set time, you know, it's not just you in front of the computer typing away all day. Client communication is huge. I always try to respond to my clients within 24 hours. So that is something uh, key. So answering a lot of emails, um, a typical day will be, I may be drafting a will, drafting a special needs trust, working on guardianship documents. Um, I usually, I would say a, a typical day, I, I'll have one or two meetings with either potential clients or to, to talk about you know, uh, me representing them, either drafting documents for them or go pursuing guardianship uh, for their, their child. Uh, or I'll meet with current clients to review documents I've already drafted for them so that they can get ready to, to execute them. I would say probably about once a week, I'll be in court for a guardianship hearing. I do quite a few guardianship hearings. I mean, right now they're all over WebEx, but right. before COVID, I was heading up to Adams County or downtown to Denver County and doing a guardianship hearing about once a week. So it's a mix of in front of my computer typing away and a mix uh, in, in meeting clients in person or over Zoom and being in court. It's a, it's a good mixture. I, uh, I wish I could say that answering emails is unique to your experience as a lawyer, but um, unfortunately for all of our young listeners out there, answering emails is pretty much uh, part of the job description in almost every uh, legal field. I think I, I think I was counting the other day. I think I average about 80 a day. Uh, is how many come in. Now, thankfully, a lot of those are, you know, just a quick read and I don't need to respond to. But yeah, I think on average, because if I don't check my email for a day, I usually have about 80 the next day. So it's it's definitely a large part of the job and not something they necessarily tell you uh, in law school to, um, you know, because there are a lot of tips and tricks too to managing your, your inbox, basically. You know, some people I check it, you know, 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. and don't try to look at it during the day. And some people kind of, you know, go back and forth. So Finding a, a system, I think, that works for you and help you be efficient is definitely an important skill for um, people to develop uh, kind of as, as they advance through their careers. Um, I had one question, and, and, and it may, I guess, kind of depend on the disability and the situation, but how involved in like, so let's say you're doing a conservatorship or a guardianship or, or a special needs trust, how involved is the disabled person's like in that process, are you mostly working with their parents or guardians, or you know, do you consult with you know, hey, this is kind of what we're thinking and and things, or is that kind of a case by case basis? I'm going to give you the lawyerly answer. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Spoken like it, a true it lawyer. Really depends on the person's. Uh, every situation is different, so it, often it will be parents who come to me when their child turns 18 for a guardianship. And sometimes the adult child is involved. They will come to the meeting if, if everyone agrees that guardianship is the way they wanna go and it is needed, it is necessary. Then often I will meet with the parents and often they will bring the adult child along. I almost always try to meet with the adult child just to um, gauge you know, their um, ability to understand and whatnot. Um, it, it's good to always see the adult child who's the subject of guardianship while, while that's happening. In terms of like special needs planning, there are two different, a few, a few different types of special needs trusts. Some of them is for future estate planning, like parents wanna set up a special needs trust for their child in the future. Mm -hmm. But there's also a, what's called a first party special needs trust or a disability trust where 
um, somebody with a disability or special needs, it's their own money going into it. For instance, if they had a personal injury set settlement, you know, they, they had a personal injury settlement after suing Starbucks or something like that, mm -hmm. or the city of Denver, and they received $100,000, then they can't just put that into a bank account because they're going to lose their Medicaid. They're going to lose their social, social security. So then they will come to me personally and say, I have a hundred grand from this personal injury settlement. What can I do with it to keep on, keep on my Medicaid? And so they right. put it into that disability trust. And so there, there's quite a bit of interaction with the person with special needs disability in those situations. But, but every case just uh, depends on the, the facts of the case. Um, I guess uh, since the Britney Spears has been in, in the news, um, if, if, a, if there's a situation where a disabled person uh, objects to the guardianship or the uh, conservatorship, um, do they get court appointed counsel or, or how does that work? Um, you know, if they're saying, you know, I, I want to be independent or I want, you know, maybe I'm okay with some of it, but I don't want to go that far. Um, you know, obviously I'm assuming they have a right to object and kind of be heard, but do they get counsel or how does that kind of work? Yes, they get counsel. Uh, so there's a lot of due process involved in a guardianship or conservatorship case. So uh, one thing that happens right when guardianship, a guardianship petition is filed in a court, the first thing the court will do is appoint a court visitor. And that court visitor is an independent third party, usually a, a, an attorney appointed by the judge to interview the parties, the, the parents, the respondent, you know, the person that is the subject of the potential guardianship. And if you look at a court visitor report, one of the very first questions on there will say, does respondent want court appointed counsel? And as soon as they say yes, or if they say yes, then they get court appointed counsel. Um, sometimes they will want court appointed counsel, not because they oppose the guardianship or conservatorship, but they feel like they, they just want representation, just sure. to be safe, you know? Um, but uh, they absolutely get the right to counsel if they want it. They get the right to, to speak at a hearing, to offer testimony, you know, all the stuff you would think in terms of like a trial, the person that is potentially the subject of guardianship gets all of those, uh, has all of those rights to uh, stop it or try to stop it if they really don't want or don't think they need it. Interesting. I thought that might be the, the case, you know, but other than like kind of public defenders, there's a lot of areas of law where you think attorneys would be appointed as kind of a due process uh, right. And, and they are not, um, you know, evictions and, and different things like that. So it's good to hear that, um, you know, individuals, especially given everything that's going on in the news, that individuals do have um, the right to kind of contest that and have some court appointed counsel to say, hey, uh, you know, maybe this is going too far or maybe it's going too long um, or things like that. Um, right. Before we move on to our, our final topic of the day, I always like to ask people this. What is the fa your favorite thing? What do you enjoy the most about your either your job or your practice area? Um, you know, what do you find the most rewarding? Uh, something like that. I think it's the people that, you know, the clients that I work with. You know, when, when a client leaves my office, more often than not, they're, they're happy. They're, I, you know, I did something good for them that they've been needing or wanting to do for a long time. I can't tell you how many times I've had a client come to me for a will or guardianship or whatever, and they say, I've been doing, I've been meaning to do this for so long, and I finally came around to it, and, and then we finally get the guardianship or get their estate plan all set up, 
and they're just happy that they can they have that security in place and they they can leave my office you know that they know that if something happens to them or to their child or whatever that things are in place moving forward and so i think just working with them you know making people's lives just a little more better and make people, giving them peace of mind is probably my favorite thing about what i do that's great, man. Uh, it's always super rewarding to be able to to help individuals, and um, you know, given the area of law that you're in, I, I can imagine how um, you know that really must be rewarding to see the impact that you have on people's lives and to give people um, you know security uh, and, and and know that you know their loved one is going to be taken care of uh, kind of after. Uh, they're gone. Uh, I usually sometimes get that experience with personal injury clients. With criminal defense clients, they don't always <laughs> they don't always leave the office happy when you break the bad news. I'm like, you know, the evidence is overwhelming, and this is what's going to happen to you. And they're like, oh darn, <laughs> not, not the not the fun kind of lawyer. But uh, um, well, yeah, it's all super interesting, and I encourage our listeners to to get involved. And at the end of uh, this podcast, uh, we'll have Chris give you some contact information. So uh, if you are interested in being an intern or getting involved uh, with CCDC or probate power or just kind of chatting about this topic in general, um, we'll get you some info so you can get a hold of Chris, uh, who's, a, who's a great guy and can kind of point you in the right direction. Um, let's move on to our final topic today. Uh, I learned just a few hours ago from Chris that uh, on July 26th is going to be the 31st anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and obviously this is uh, audio only, um, but Chris, you are in a, uh, a wheelchair. And so I know that this law and kind of this area of law is, uh, you know, very personal to you and, and something that you're passionate about. Um, I'm assuming that most people have heard of the ADA but most people probably have no idea what it actually does. So why don't you kind of just give us the bird's eye view of what is the ADA? Sure. Uh, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate that. So um, just to step back, yes, I'm in a wheelchair. I'm a, I'm a T6 paraplegic. So um, basically, I don't have the use of my legs. So I'm in a wheelchair. I have been since 18. So now that I'm getting old and I'm 36, so roughly half my life I've been in a wheelchair. Um, and so the ADA, man, it is the paramount civil rights law, at least for me, in uh, of the last 30 years, at least for 30, you know, 31 years, at least in my opinion. It provides uh, a, a lifeline for uh, all peoples with disabilities in terms of access and being able to be a member of society. You know, before the ADA, I, I know people would have to call a restaurant to say, can I get in your restaurant? You know, do you have, do you have stairs? Can I get, you know, can my wheelchair fit in your doorway? You know, things like that. Or um, people wouldn't be able, weren't, weren't able to get on buses. People weren't able to get on a subway. There's no curb cuts. You know, there is kind of, uh, it created a different world for people with disabilities that they were not seen as part of the community. And in many ways, they could not be a part of the community because if you're in a wheelchair uh, and, you, and there's no curb cut, you know, you're not exactly getting on the sidewalk by yourself unless somebody's pushing you up there or you may not be able to go to a concert because there's no, you know, handicapped accessible seating. You know? Right, right. Um, so, you know, over 31 years now, it's amazing that the ADA just, I, there's no question that, um, I can go, to, you know, if my favorite musician is going to Summit Music Hall, I know I can go. 
you know, go in the Red Rocks. I, you know, as long as I can get tickets. I know I can go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, you know, I know I can go to, uh, you know, West End Tavern or uh, down here. You know, I can go to, to BJ's restaurant down here um, in Aurora because I know that it's, it's accessible. So the ADA is just uh, an amazing law. Um, to me, on the same level as the civil rights le legislation from um, the 1960s in terms of just changing people's lives and definitely change, has changed my life. Wow. Um, you know, I think you, you, you pointed out the curb cuts and obviously I see those every day, but you know, as a, a person who is able-bodied and has, uh, you know, that privilege really, I think is the, is the way to say that, um, you know, it's something that I don't even really, you know, you just kind of take for granted. You just kind of see the slope on the sidewalks. So does the ADA, I, I know it applies to private businesses, but so it also applies to like local and state governments and stuff. So the, the like cities and stuff that own the sidewalks are required to basically have those. As far as I understand, yes. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't litigate the ADA. Right, you know, right. But I do know that um, like city buses need to be accessible. You know, Red Rocks, which is owned by the city of Denver, you know, um, Kevin Williams and my organization has, has sued Red, you know, city of Denver over Red Rocks over the accessibility issues there to make it better for people with disabilities. So yeah, this definitely applies to government agencies as well. And you're speaking of, speaking of curb cuts, um, for my honeymoon, a couple of years ago, my wife and I went to Europe. <clears throat> so we went to Paris and Italy, uh -huh. and um, there are a, a lot in a lot of places in Europe there are no, no curb cuts. And so um, a lot of times I would just I'd have to do Willie to hop down to cross the street, and then often my wife would have to help me you know, pop up on the the other side of the sidewalk, or um, I cannot get on the subway in Paris because they had very few accessible um, stations that I could get down to and. I don't know if I could get on the subway. I don't remember if I could actually get on the subway, but we didn't even attempt it because there were so few accessible uh, stations. So it's really unique to go to an older place like Europe and see how really how the U.S. used to be. And then coming back to the U.S. and you say, oh, actually, things are pretty good here, you know, because of the ADA. Wow. Yeah. And you think about that, you know, it's not. You would expect a country, you know, that maybe is, is poor or not as developed, maybe to have some access issues. Um, but you would think that, you know, a lot of you know, wealthier nations like like France or, or Italy would have that. And, you know, again, that's, I think, kind of my, my privilege showing just to kind of make that assumption. Um, but, you know, so it really does, I think, speak to the benefits of the ADA and how it really just changed you know daily life for you know disabled people so is that something i guess now you know you don't necessarily always or call ahead or something to restaurants just because because of the ada you assume there's going to be at least some accommodation or some ability um, for you kind of to access these places definitely uh you know that that's something that doesn't even cross my mind when my wife and i are like let's try a new restaurant you know downtown or Oh, you know, this this little hole in the wall that we've heard about for years. Uh, let, let's finally check that out. You know, it's not even a thought that I won't be able to get in there. Um, occasionally you do run into it. You know, there are places that are just in a basement or something like this, or the they there are restrictions in the ADA about if it's the building's old enough and they haven't been renovated and stuff, they don't have to be, you know, accessible. There are little things like that, but by and large, I find that I can really get in almost anywhere I, I want to, or I need to, and it's, it's pretty nice. 
That's awesome, man. And so it was 31 years ago. I was trying to think, was that H.W. Bush's administration? It was, yes. Because I remember the, the ADA for, for civil rights legislation was actually you know pretty bipartisan and was kind of uh, uh, an issue that, you know, not to get too political, but you wouldn't necessarily think of coming out of a, uh, a Republican administration. But I remember reading something um, maybe at his, uh, his passing um, that, you know, it was probably the thing he was most proudest of or one of the things he was most proudest of in his administration. If, if I remember correctly, I think Bob Dole was a, like a major sponsor because if you recall, he was injured in World War II or Korea. I can't remember which, but he, he had no use of one of his arms. And so he was a disabled individual in most of his life, you know, a conservative Republican from Kansas. Um, but he was a really a, a big sponsor of the ADA, if I, if I remember correctly. Interesting. Um, so then at the, the CCDC, I think we talked a little bit earlier, you guys do have an, an ADA kind of litigation um, department. And so um, if any of our listeners, uh, you know, uh, hopefully this doesn't happen to them too often because people are following the rules and doing the right thing. But if they find themselves or they have a friend or family member who is disabled and they find themselves um, where dealing with a business or an entity or a government um, that is not accommodating or making reasonable accommodations uh, for their disability. Um, CCDC is an organization they can contact um, and potentially get involved in, in that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. They um, quite often that, you know, they get calls all the time from people that um, were possibly discriminated against. A lot of times right now, I know uh, Kevin tells me, Tim Williams, it tells me that service dogs are a big issue that he deals with nowadays. That, that's kind of a newer sort of uh, accommodation. And the, the avenue, the, the you know, specialties around that, you know, what are the accommodations with a service animal? So they definitely deal with uh, new cases all the time. It, anymore, it's not the big ones of there's no ramp into this place. You know, that a lot of those were, have been decided now it's a more in, in the in the weeds a little bit like right animals that are while very important it's not always as obvious as steps up to you know the restaurant's front door right and, and i'm sure part of it is just educating the business owner or the landowner um you know i don't Hopefully not. I would think that most people, especially in 2021, don't want to be discriminatory and they just may not know, um, you know, hey, that, you know, we need to be making this accommodation. And um, so as, as part of it, I guess, you know, just kind of reaching out to them and being like, hey, this is kind of what's going on. You know, we don't want to have to, you know, get involved in litigation and things, but, um, you know, we need these changes to be made so that this issue kind of doesn't have happen again in the future. Honestly, that I'm not sure how they go about that. Um, that would be definitely something outside your uh, outside yeah, your outside practice of, area. Just my, putting you on the spot expertise. with all the litigation questions, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, Chris, okay. man, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, always good to uh, see you. Um, what is the best email address? Uh, so earlier, as I mentioned, um, if anyone is interested in disability law, uh, special needs planning, trust in estates, uh, probate administration, um, Chris is a great guy to kind of reach out to and, and kind of learn more about that or any of these organizations we've discussed today. Um, is, is, I assume email is the best way to contact you. Email's great. It is crock at ccdconline.org or you can look up uh, on our website and all my contact info is on the website and that is 
www.cccdcprobatepower.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, I hope you have a uh, wonderful rest of your summer and especially an awesome September. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Have a good one. Get legal with it.